Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode, attorney Arlie Boswell confronted a pair of men who had planned to kill him, and one of them, Art Newman, called off the hit. Charlie Berger went on trial on March 26, 1924, and was found guilty on several bootlegging-related charges. He was sentenced to a year in prison, and despite his attempts to persuade another judge to free him, he was unsuccessful. Meanwhile, Carl and Earl Shelton ambushed and shot at S. Glenn Young and his wife, and participated in a shootout in Heron that left six men dead. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Removed as he was from the battle itself and the smell of a just-fired pistol, or the searing flight of the bullet as it slammed into a man's body or a brick wall, and learning of the details primarily through newsprint, Berger was, for the moment, preoccupied with personal matters. First, there was the problem of Beatrice. He felt that she was drawing away from him. From the beginning, of course, he had been jealous. Once, when her two male cousins came to visit from Pennsylvania, he became furious, seeing in their easy laughter more than the camaraderie of friendship and kinship. Because she rarely answered his letters now, he believed the worst and insisted on seeing her. She recalled that first time that she tried to see him in jail. The two girls went along, and so did Beatrice's father. Driving the car was Jess Jones, one of Charlie's hired hands. She said with a smile, Jess got lost. We got as far as Centralian. We didn't know which way to go. So we turned around and came back. But I wrote him a letter in a restaurant in Centralian. Told him that was as far as we got. Far from pleased when he learned of their turning back, Charlie made reference to that and other matters in a letter postmarked May 29th, 1924. No changes have been made in either the wording or the spelling of that letter. Dear Mrs. Burger and Babies, I know you were blowed up. I can't blame you a bit. But listen, girlie, it's partly your fault. When you was going any place, you ought to have sat down and wrote me a letter and telling me where you were going and who with. I'm going to ask you to move up here. You ignored my letter and never said you would or wouldn't. You ought to have sat down, wrote me a letter, and told me you'd rather stay with the folks. I would have said all right. I asked you to send me a telegram, and you didn't do it. I've written half a dozen times, and I asked you to come up and see me, and you said nothing about that. I got a letter from you saying you got $300 for the register, and then I got another letter from you postmark Centralia saying you were going to ship the dogs and the honey Thursday. The dogs were already here. If you had sat down and wrote me and told me you was taking your father and mother somewhere, you know I would have been satisfied. As you know, I don't care where you go as long as your people go with you. Instead of that, you always write and tell me you're looking for a job, either wanting to go to Detroit or St. Louis. You know that your credit is good in Harrisburg, and you don't have to work. Instead of writing and saying, Dear Hubby, or something of that sort, you always address your letters, Mr. Charles Berger, and always in a hurry. Spend about 30 minutes a day, and maybe I won't be so suspicious, and I won't blow up so much. The jailer here has tried to call you several times, but could never get you. He's my friend, and he will let me talk to you over long distance, any time. So don't forget me, woman, because you know I'm in love with you, or I wouldn't blow up. 
and I don't make me live hard because you know it. I'll have to admit that jealousy is the worst sickness in the world, and I am sure jealous of you. So I will try to close, try and keep my little family together, so when you come up here and bring a big club with you and hit me right between the eyes, I remain your loving hubby, Chaz. The dogs Charlie mentioned, she said, were a couple of bird dogs he had given the sheriff. Another surviving letter is dated August 2nd, 1924, and addressed to his wife at her parents' home at 302 North Sherman in Harrisburg. Dear B and Babies, I feel a great deal better since I got to talk to you. I am sending this letter special so it'll get to you tomorrow. I am sending Hart one special delivery to so you can get that money tomorrow night and leave Monday morning. So let's try and forget what we both have done and try and raise our two babies. All these hard times and notoriety should learn us both a good lesson. Bring enough clothes with you so you can stay for three or four days. If babies need anything, we can buy it here. Wire me when you leave so I can arrange a room for you, hoping this will find you in good humor and the babies in good health. I remain your old pal, Chaz. Monday morning or soon thereafter, Beatrice and the two girls were on a train bound for Danville. At Danville, he had the run of the place, she said, looking back over the years. They didn't lock him up. He had an apartment because I went up there, me and the children, and stayed awake with him. This home-like scene was but an interlude in an increasingly difficult situation. For some time, Bob Bainbridge had warned his daughter about Charlie's newfound friends, the Sheltons. They would get him killed, he said, and her too if she stayed around long enough. Before going to jail, Charlie had heard similar lectures from his father-in-law about choosing well one's companions, but there was nothing to indicate that he really listened. How could he? In jail or out, Berger had grand visions of really being someone important. Someone like C.V. Parker, who owned a string of stores in Harrisburg and Saline County, or his longtime friend J. Milo Pruitt, a Buick dealer and, like Parker, a director of the First Trust and Savings Bank. When these visions were evoked in his conversation, as they often were, Bob Bainbridge heard him out, adding when he got the chance, Charlie, you're gonna die with your boots on. That's what you're gonna do. Despite their differences, the two men got along, or they could at least pass the time of day with each other. Not so with Charlie and his mother-in-law, because, purely and simply, she hated every fiber in his body. Once, when he was driving one of his women to work at a place in the West End, Mrs. Bainbridge happened to see them. Furious, she hurled a brick through the car's windshield. Berger, at whom the missile was aimed, thought the scene wildly hilarious, and even expressed admiration for the woman's spunk. Once on a street in Harrisburg, when he had the audacity to speak to her in public, she hit him in the face with a brand new alarm clock. Some woman. With Beatrice, it was different especially after she delivered that strong-willed woman a granddaughter. Actually, the reconciliation between mother and daughter occurred just before Charlene's birth, or just after Bob Bainbridge told his wife of the cars he had seen at the burgers as he was on his way home from work. Sensing that something was wrong, Mary Bainbridge hurried over only to find her daughter having a difficult delivery. After the nearly lifeless baby was finally delivered with forceps, the grandmother immersed the poor child in hot and cold water in the bathtub, thus, according to Beatrice, saving the child's life. Bob Bainbridge's insistence that Beatrice flee far outweighed the influence of her short visit to Danville. Charming as ever and outwardly kind, Berger still dreamed aloud that, Someday, 
Someday I'll be worth my weight in gold. There was about this man, so fascinating to many, something of the grating monotony of a stuck record. Over and over in the early days of their marriage, he had played on the Victrola a record that seemed to mean a great deal to him. Beatrice could recall only the refrain, I'm on the inside looking out, waiting for the evening mail. While he dreamed in Danville, she was in Harrisburg, packing her bags. Her brother-in-law, Howard Boatwright, who worked for the O.I. Baker Furniture Store in Harrisburg, had left a trunk at her parents' home. Little by little, she took her clothes over until one night, she and her father and brother-in-law drove to El Dorado in the furniture truck. There, Beatrice boarded the train that would carry her to Shamokin, Pennsylvania, the home of her father's brother. Minnie and Charlene were left with the Bainbridges. Too clearly, she remembered. I had a lay over there in Pittsburgh, and I was almost sure when I chained from one train to another I saw Charlie and this Jess Jones. I was scared to death. Every time a stranger would come along, I thought it was him after me. In the wake of his wife's disappearance, Berger got permission from Judge Lindley to personally attend some property entanglements in Harrisburg. True to his word, the prisoner returned to Danville on October 2nd, after a week's absence. Following an investigation of the charges by prosecuting attorney Lawrence T. Allen, Berger was freed on October 6th by order of the United States Court, Judge Lindley presiding. Three letters from Berger to his friend and attorney Alphaeus Gustin detail his efforts to win that release, and also demonstrate his quite genuine concern for his children. They also introduce to us one Jack Davis, better known as Hoghead Davis, a little-known but deadly character. As with the other letters, Berger's spelling is unchanged. Danville, Illinois. June 25th, 1924. Mr. Alvin Gustin, Harrisburg, Illinois. Dear Sir, have you ever done anything with that petition you had for me? There's been one made up against me, but send the other anyway. It may do some good. The judge has cut fines and sentences down on all but two here, but he seems hard at me. There must have been a great many letters come in against me. Write all the news and let me know what you can do. As ever your friend, Charles Berger. Danville, August 26th. Through 24th. Dear friend Gustin, I received a letter from B today. Said she was going to some other country and left the children with her mother. Well, I would like to have the children up here for about two weeks. Go and see her father and see if we will get the kids and bring them up here to stay with me for about two weeks. I will pay his fare when I get ready to send them back home. I will wire him to come and get them. If he doesn't want to do that, put Minnie on the morning train and wire me and I will meet her. Get my car and put it in Pruitt's garage. L.T. Allen, District Prosecuting Attorney, has taken my case up again. He's convinced that I am innocent. I want affidavits covering the 8th of November. The night of the 8th, I met Jack Davis at Parker City. I got off the train and met John M. Bowden, and there were several others I just don't remember their names. They were coon hunting with me the night of the 8th, and I went back to Harrisburg the morning of the 9th, we have found out. The date that Simcox testified against me, he was at Utopia Hunting. L.T. Allen is writing to Lee Barnes and Gaskins to get affidavits that they saw me the night of the 8th get off at Parker City, for they were on the train. Get that Rokes affidavit that he swore to either Jack or Rumsey. Have it and get the county court records where I paid Cecil Fine on the day of the 7th. I want you to take a day off and tend to this as I would like to have this tended to this week. Court starts on the 1st and I would like to have the affidavits here by that time. I will appreciate this favor very much. Answer at once. Your friend, Charles Berger. September 4th, 1923. Dear friend, 
Received your letter. Haven't received Roke's affidavit. I am writing Jack, trying to get an affidavit from him. I want you to go to Horseman School and get Minnie's grades and transfer the card. I started Minnie to school yesterday. If you are coming up here before long, I want you to bring the baby up. Write and tell me all the news. Your friend, Chaz. The Jack, referred to in the letters of August 26th and September 4th, is the aforementioned Hoghead Davis. In the entry in his diary for April 4th, 1924, Gustin writes, Jack Davis of PM with petition for federal judge. How effective this petition was in persuading Judge Lindley to let the prisoner go is not known, but it does seem clear that Davis helped win Berger's release. The entry in Gustin's diary for September 26th shows that Berger and Davis visited the attorney in his office that afternoon or night. Not until 1928 was it intimated that Davis was the man credited by the underworld with the killing of Whitey Doring. But by this time, Hoghead was long gone, having fled after shooting Roy Montgomery in a pool room in Harrisburg's West End on Christmas Eve 1924. Montgomery died two days later. That John Bard was one of the two operators of this pool room indicates that Charlie Berger may have had an interest in the establishment. At the time of the Doering killing, Davis was Berger's paid bodyguard and was said to be the best shot in Williamson County. Following Davis's disappearance, his two daughters lived at Berger's house for a time before being transferred to an orphanage. Under the date of January 15, 1925, we find this entry in Alf Gustin's diary. Jack Davis policies number T20174T20178 and fire 4388 returned cancelled to Earl I. Lingle. Settled as she was in Pennsylvania, although afraid to leave her uncle's home and living under an assumed name, Beatrice began noticing something very odd about the letters her father sent. She wrote to him about it. Convinced that his letters were being steamed open and read at the post office in Harrisburg at Berger's request, Bob Bainbridge went to the local postmaster and threatened to go straight to the postmaster general if further tampering occurred. From that time on, to assure that his messages would not be inspected by unwanted parties, he walked from his home in West Harrisburg to the Big Four Depot on the other side of town and shipped the letters by rail. For fear that the news might bring his daughter back, Bob Bainbridge failed to mention that upon his return to Harrisburg, Charlie had reclaimed Charlene. Prior to the little girl's departure, Berger had frequently stopped by the Bainbridge home on the pretext of seeing Charlene, but actually, Mr. Bainbridge felt, to learn of Beatrice's whereabouts so that he could kill her or have her killed. Less suspicious of her husband's motives, Beatrice nevertheless was canny enough to heed her father's advice to stay away from Harrisburg. As for the girls, Minnie lived in Danville for a year, staying at the home of H.M. Culp, who was chief probation officer. Charlene, too, lived in the Culp home, but for only three months. After that time, she was brought to Harrisburg to live with her father. Later, Minnie joined her. After the terrible tornado struck Murfreesboro and West Frankfurt in March of 1925, Berger learned of an unidentified woman who had been killed in West Frankfurt and persuaded his father-in-law to check out the story. Although he knew better, of course. But thinking it prudent to appear ignorant about the matter, Bob Bainbridge drove to West Frankfurt, viewed the girl's body, and reported to his anxious son-in-law that Beatrice was not among the dead. That piece of information seemed to ease Berger's mind. 
A divorce was granted in Harrisburg. It became official on September 19, 1925. Next time, Ora Thomas heard the commotion and went to investigate. When he saw his longtime enemy standing in the doorway, Young warned, Don't pull that gun, Ora. That concludes another episode of Blanket Ford Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and online at BlanketFordRadioTheater.com to learn more about this project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.